you starting to feel comfortable flying again? Were you riding on trains free from the spectres of Ladbroke Grove and Waterfall? Were you looking at cyclists without wondering about the effectiveness of helmet laws? Just when you thought it was finally safe to start suggesting again that safety was just common sense, that accidents have simple causes, and that human error is always to blame, it's time once again for DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. Hi folks, my name is Drew Ray. I'm a safety engineer, a risk researcher, and more recently a lecturer in the School of Humanities, Languages and Social Sciences at Griffith University in Brisbane, Australia. I'll give you some background on what's been keeping me busy and why DisasterCast has been on hiatus, but let's save that for the end of the episode and get right into today's topic. One of the themes we've addressed previously on DisasterCast is the way each story about a disaster is really just one face of a multifaceted prism. Accidents don't have one primary cause, or even one clear causal structure where A plus B causes C, D plus E causes F, and C and F together spell tragedy. Causality, when you get right down to it, is a psychological phenomenon rather than an objective scientific truth. Nevertheless, psychology matters. Even if you don't accept that accidents have simple causes, one of the functions of accident investigation is to help people make sense of the senseless. That's one justification for why accident reports usually try to distill multiple conflicting accounts into a single timeline of events, told from a supposedly objective point of view. It's rare for an accident report to provide multiple interpretations of events, and rarer still for investigators to concede that different perspectives can be equally valid. Now, this style of accident reporting seems obvious because we're used to it, but just think for a moment how unusual it is. How often, for example, does politics get reported as if the, as if the truth is entirely on one side? Heck, how often do settled scientific issues such as climate change or the effectiveness of vaccines get reported without suggesting that there's some sort of ongoing debate. For accidents, though, investigators are treated by everyone except the lunatic fringe as godlike purveyors of objective truth. There's one type of accident, though, where the media does look for controversy and contradiction, where it's the good guys versus the bad guys, but where they're willing to accept that we don't know which is which. Sports Stadium Disasters Stadium disasters almost always have at least three sides. We have two rival groups of spectators, and we have the crowd control officials. As we'll see from today's examples, there are multiple sides even within the officials. It's very seldom for there just to be one group of people responsible for controlling the crowd. While we talk about these stories, I want you to bear in mind that these are all people out to have a good time watching sport. Live sports, despite the way it's sometimes reported, is an extremely pro-social activity. Sports crowds are made up of families, groups of friends, church and community group outings, citizenry brought together to celebrate both athletic skill and an intense spirit of belonging. Given the demographics of sports crowds, they tend to skew towards young adults, hooliganism is remarkably rare. 
and it usually happens outside the immediate confines of the event itself anyway. However, crowds are a great example of a complex system. You can't create simple models or formulas to explain or predict their behaviour. That also means that it's usually over-narrativizing to talk about the mood of a crowd, or to explain the crowd behaviour as if it were a person with a mind. Both of those things are simple models, and they're not enough to explain a complex phenomena. Crowds are hundreds or thousands of individual agents, each doing the best they can with local information, and most of that information is provided by the nearby actions of other agents, who usually don't have any better idea about what's going on. That's why people who seriously try to model crowds for a living do it, by creating models that have lots of individual bits that talk to each other and interact with each other, and then they examine how those bits interact to create the overall picture of a crowd. They don't try to oversimplify by a formula that describes the model. Now, how about the stadium that the crowd is in? Try to visualise the stadium as a series of concentric circles. In the middle circle is the event itself. This is a wide open area which is great for evacuations into, but it's usually out of bounds to spectators, and there are guards and barriers to stop the spectators getting into the middle. Next, we have the stands or terraces. This is where the spectators, most of the time, want to be. From here, they can safely watch the sports. The stands are a pretty safe place to be in, unless there are too many people in the stands, or the people in the stands have some reason to need to get out of the stands. The area immediately outside of the stands we'll call the outer concourse, or red zone. No one actually wants to be in the red zone. It's too crowded to be comfortable or safe, but you can't actually do anything or see the game. So all the people who are in the red zone are usually trying to get from the red zone to somewhere else and that's where most trouble starts. The key to safe stadium design is to get people through the red zone as quickly as possible, but not so quickly that you let too many people through and you overfill the stands. Do you see the intrinsic problem? If you have a bunch of people in the red zone but the stands are already full, those people have got nowhere to go. Basically, you just need them to go home, but they're not going to do that so long as they think they still have a chance of watching the game. The more you do to restrict their access to keep them out, the more you risk crowding them up against barriers, and you risk locking the people inside the stands from getting out again. There are a couple of ways to keep the red zone clear. One is to pre-sell as many tickets as possible so that only the right number of people show up. Then all you've got to do is check their tickets, get them through the turnstiles. Another is to build an outer perimeter around the red zone, creating yet another circle that needs to be managed, but ensuring that you can limit the number of people who are stuck inside that difficult space. Even given that particular design, there's a few strategies you can use to keep the red zone under control. It helps to provide lots of information about what's going on, and to give people clear guidance about how to move about. If you put up large screens, you can even show what's happening inside the stadium to people outside the stadium, so they're not rushing to get in to see what all the cheering is about. Now, let's talk about a couple of specific incidents. On 11th of April 2001, there was a football match between the Kaiser Chiefs and the Orlando Pirates. 
the nature of the football match isn't particularly relevant, except perhaps for the fact that this was association football, soccer. Soccer is a peculiar sport where most of the fighting occurs off the field and outside the formal rules of the game. It was a big game, perhaps even the match that would decide who won the championship. It was held at Ellis Park Stadium in Johannesburg. Ellis Park at the time held 60,000 spectators. It was part of a pedestrian precinct that could support large crowds, up to 150,000, and it was readily accessible by foot from nearby residential areas or by public transport from further away. The management of Ellis Park and the Kaiser Chiefs, who were the home team, had good reason to expect that the crowd was going to be a problem. In 1991, there'd been a friendly match between the Kaiser Chiefs and the Orlando Pirates, sound familiar? Which had ended with a crowd stampede, killing 41 spectators. In 1998, during a game between the Kaiser Chiefs and the Orlando Pirates, the police had ended up firing rubber-coated bullets into the crowd outside the stadium. In 2000, yet another game between the Kaiser Chiefs and the Orlando Pirates faced serious problems with crowds forcing entry to the stadium. Let's just say this was a big match, and arguably the crowds had form. The nature of the problem in each case was fairly simple to explain, but hard to deal with. Many tickets were sold in advance, but the majority of tickets were sold just before or during the game, at booths outside the perimeter fence. So it was very easy for the crowd outside the stadium, the number of people who showed up to get tickets, to become larger than the capacity of the stadium, the number of seats there were tickets for. So we've got a crowd that's a mix of people with pre-purchased tickets who are just trying to get in, people who've just bought tickets who are trying to get through the gates, and people without tickets who may be trying to get tickets, maybe just enjoying the crowd experience, or maybe trying to go home again. There doesn't need to be anyone who's actively misbehaving for this to get chaotic. Any attempt to push the crowd away to clear the space risks pushing away the people who've legitimately got tickets and are trying to get to the stadium. And any attempt to release the pressure by letting extra people inside just transfers the problem and you risk there being overcrowding inside instead of outside. In each occasion, once the match started, that's when chaotic turned dangerous. People who were waiting or hoping to get inside start pushing or moving towards the gates. They want to get in as quickly as possible. They can hear noise and cheering inside and there might be goals being scored. The barriers become damaged. There's some people who are trying to get in past the ticketed entrances. You've got security and police trying to push back against the crowds and injuries occur. So this event has history, and there's a clear need for people to be prepared. So the various groups had operational meetings before the match, and they agreed that crowd control was a serious problem. One of the things they discussed was putting up a big screen, either within the precinct so the crowds could see it, or at the nearby Johannesburg Stadium so that they could divert people to go and watch it on the screen. They had done this before, successfully used a screen and one of the big effects is, particularly at kickoff time, people can see the early stages of the match in progress, so they're not worried about missing. Most people without a ticket would prefer to see what's happening on the screen 
rather than get into a push, which is probably futile trying to get inside. Unfortunately, transcripts of the planning meetings make it clear that this group who's supposed to be planning the event either wasn't willing or maybe didn't even think they had the power to decide to actually hire the screen. They repeatedly referred to it as a financial decision and it wasn't their job to make financial decisions. Possibly what they were thinking was that the game's not actually going to sell out. They were planning for a big crowd, but they weren't planning for a capacity crowd. And it's usually those last few thousand people between not quite full and overfull who make the big difference. Now, at Ellis Park, there was an outer perimeter fence for security around the red zone. So if you're coming along as a spectator, you buy a ticket outside the perimeter, then you move into the red zone, and then you go through gates into the stands. But despite the coordination meetings, it wasn't really clear who had security control over which part of the process, particularly whose job it was to look after the outer perimeter fence. There was one security company who thought they were responsible for marshalling crowds inside the fence, another who thought that they were responsible for the entrances, but not the rest of the fence, and the police thought they were responsible for responding to breaches of the perimeter, but not with actually protecting it from being breached. So that kind of leaves no one responsible for the fence itself. The big problematic area was near gates 4, 5 and 6. These are the easiest gates to get to from the outer perimeter fence, anywhere else you need to actually wander around past several gates before you get to your gate. Gate 4 in particular was the closest gate to the perimeter. And these gates, and the ticket booths that serviced them, simply couldn't cope with the volume of people who needed to get through in the minutes before a game. So, on the day of the match, 11th April 2001, 80,000 people showed up. Remember, 60,000 seats, 80,000 people. And at 7.15 it was announced that all the tickets had been sold. It's unclear what that means, you know, how many tickets there were. Probably there were actually more than 60,000 tickets because they sold them at multiple places. And by some counts there were as many as 64,000 tickets. But the official record is that they sold around 58,000, slightly less than stadium capacity. They made an announcement that the tickets are sold out. And that was the first trigger point for the crowd to start moving dangerously. The trouble was, you hear the announcement, but it wasn't immediately obvious whether every ticket was sold, or whether it was just that some of the booths had run out. So people were thinking, well, maybe some of the booths still have got tickets. If we can find those booths in time, we can get one of the last tickets. So the crowd starts moving in a general direction towards gate four. Around this time, the outer perimeter security was lost. Uh, we're not exactly sure why. In some cases, it seems that the security deliberately let the fences down to let the crowd move about more freely in order to get to the booths that still had tickets. There was a wave of movement towards the gates at this point, and several thousand people entered the stadium. The official report, in fact, says, several thousand people forced their way into the stadium. But I don't want you to get the idea that these were gate crashes. So just think through the logic. If a line of security people can't stop 
the crowd moving. If closed steel gates can't stop the crowd moving. Just imagine what it's like to be part of the crowd. You're not forcing your way in, you're being forced in. And any pushing that you're doing is just to create space to breathe and stay on your feet. This isn't just you as some good people. This can be, in fact, everyone in the crowd can be being pushed at the same time and in the same direction. And many of these people were, in fact, ticket holders. Ticket holders have every right to be part of a crowd moving towards the stadium gates. It's not exactly their fault that the movement wasn't in an orderly fashion. Between 7.15 and 8pm, all of the gates on that side of the stadium were broken. There were many crush injuries, and around 20 people were killed. Tear gas may or may not have been used against the crowd. So we've got up to 8 o'clock. At 8 o'clock is kickoff time. The game starts, creating another trigger point. The match starting piled on the pressure to get somewhere to watch, and the only place to watch was inside. In fact, both FIFA and the South African Football Association had rules which, at that time, forbade kickoff unless the crowd situation inside and outside was stable. At the time the kickoff whistle was blown, there were many dead bodies. That's not a stable crowd. In fact, the match continued for 40 minutes as the rescue operations were ongoing, including moving victims in to lie down behind one of the goals. By the time the game was called off, 43 people were killed and hundreds were injured. The second stadium disaster to talk about today is, of course, Hillsborough. In the United Kingdom, Hillsborough is a pretty emotive topic. There were 96 fatalities, including children, and hundreds of injuries. Both the press and the public are convinced that evil is the only explanation for such a tragedy. But exactly where the evil resides has apparently moved over time. On 15th of April, 1989, Liverpool was playing Nottingham Forest at a neutral venue, Hillsborough Stadium. Police were concerned about the potential behaviour of the Liverpool fans, as well as the safety of the crowds at a notoriously difficult-to-manage stadium. The game kicked off at 3pm and was abandoned six minutes later. Fans were climbing fences onto the game pitch in an effort to escape a crush. Somehow, two of the terraced areas within the stands, occupied by standing Liverpool fans, became massively overcrowded. Barriers broke, the crowd quite literally fell over each other, and many people were crushed to death. The police, meanwhile, were slow to recognise that a disaster was in progress, and initially assumed they were dealing with an unruly group rather than distressed people, so they were slow to provide help. So, what actually happened at Hillsborough? Hillsborough Stadium was built originally in 1899. By the 1980s, it was too small, and it was surrounded by a built-up residential area. There was hardly any space to manage crowds outside the stadium. They basically came straight from the public highway, through the turnstiles, and into the stands. So the red zone, the concourse, is very, very small. In 1981, there was a serious accident on the Leppings Lane Terrace. This was part of the stands where the spectators literally stood to watch the game. 
things got so crowded on the outer concourse that the police and stewards were forced to open one of the exit gates and let people into the stands to relieve crowding. Now, this seems a little bit of a problem. You've got people who are crowded outside, you let them inside. Well, fortunately, at that time the stands were quite open, and so the police were able to divert the crowd movements to reduce the pressure at the most crowded spots and to avoid fatalities. There were still injuries, but no fatalities. The crowd could just sort of move around the stadium, and some of them could move onto the pitch, and things were okay. This incident, as well as the injuries, caused a loss of confidence between the Sheffield Wednesday Football Club, who operated the stadium, and the South Yorkshire Police. Both of them, in a sense, were responsible for security. During the 1981 incident, the crowd was able to move sideways around the stadium. This helped relieve the pressure, but was a bit frightening to the police, who saw the potential for a much more serious loss of control. On their recommendation, and in line with the advice that was given at the time, lateral barriers were installed. Lateral barriers divide a terrace up into sections, which were charmingly called pens. Essentially, the crowd was chopped up into small groups by the barriers, which prevents mass movement. The barriers also limit the ability for aggression. You're penned up, you can't get into a barney with different pens. The new risk, though, was that each pen could now be individually overcrowded. You could have the stadium under capacity, but one or two pens that are over capacity. Of particular concern are the popular pens. So there's two pens that are right behind the goal. These are both popular and they're easy to reach from the turnstiles. For several years, practices developed for managing the various pinch points of crowding. One of the things they did was police were deployed in the streets around the stadium, which effectively projects an outer perimeter extending the concourse into the nearby streets. The police on the outer perimeter checked tickets and diverted spectators away from crowded areas. They also had strategies for opening and closing various gates within the stadium to balance the filling of pens, and in particular directing people away from those two centre pens as they became full. They had rules that the game wasn't meant to start, unless the crowd is being managed effectively outside to make sure that there's no last-minute rush when the people outside hear the starting whistle. So these various measures were built up through experience and judgement, but they don't appear to have ever been formally evaluated in debriefs after the games, or to have evolved into a set of standing orders. Each year they wrote a new standing order based on their remembered experience from the previous years. So, as a result, no one's entirely clear what's considered to be best practice. And of course, with the wonderful benefit of hindsight, anything that the police had previously done in 1987 or in 1988, but didn't do in 1989, would be labelled as a police failure. Anything they did in 1989 that they hadn't done previously would also be labelled as police failure. One of the things that happened in 1989 was three weeks before the match, the match commander was relieved and replaced. I can't see anything to suggest that this was an irresponsible decision. There were good reasons for relieving him, at least in the minds of the people at the time but it means that there was someone in charge now who wasn't nearly as experienced in operating stadium crowds. 
and on the day of the match, the 1981 incident repeated with a vengeance. The area outside the turnstiles became overcrowded. Even the mounted police were trapped inside the crowd, unable to move in order to control the crowd. The police reported afterwards that the crowd was angry and unruly. The spectators reported afterwards that no attempt was made to control and direct the crowd. It probably seemed that way to both groups, but neither report was fair. The crowd were just trying to peacefully get in to see a football game. The police were just trying to help them get in. It's just, it's very hard to communicate broad attempt when you're part of a crowd or trying to control a crowd. And the physical design of the spaces made things impossible for both groups. Then came somewhere, thing that was definitely a mistake. To relieve the crush, the police opened the exit gates, just as they had in 1981, letting the crowd directly onto the stands. However, they didn't make sure to block off the central pens at the same time. Now remember in 1981 there were no pens so the crowd could move about sideways and balance itself. Now they've got no opportunity to balance. On average, things were fine. On average, it wasn't overcrowded, either inside or outside. But the centre two pens had twice as many people as they could hold, and no one could get back out again. The only way out was onto the field. The police guarding the pitch have a fatal goal conflict. They're charged with preventing unauthorised access to the pitch, but they also have control over the only escape route. And unsurprisingly, they were slow to switch from their first mode, which is stopping the crowd, to their second mode, which is supposed to be helping the crowd. After that point, emergency response was mixed. As with any disaster, some things worked really well, and some things worked really badly. It seems that ambulances were dispatched pretty quickly, and they got survivors back to the hospitals pretty quickly. However, on-scene triage and treatment were less well organised, and it's been argued that there were deaths that could have been avoided, or injuries that could have been reduced if there'd been different prioritisation. Now, if you've heard of Hillsborough, you've probably heard most not about the actual accident, but about the scandal. The South Yorkshire Police were in the awkward position of being the subject of a potentially criminal inquiry, rather than their usual state, which was the ones being doing the inquiry. To anyone familiar with large organisations trying to limit their liability after an accident, the police didn't do anything unusual or unusually egregious, but they did make a pretty strong attempt to create a story and to make that story uniform that cast the police into a good light. Now, I said this wasn't unusual or unusually bad, What makes it unacceptable is that the South Yorkshire Police weren't just any large organisation involved in an accident. They were the police. Police have very strict rules about the handling of evidence, including the collection and processing of witness statements. All of their witnesses, and all the people handling the statements, are supposedly trained and expert in the appropriate taking and handling of statements. And it's that difference that's enough to take things from trying to cast themselves into the best light to why are the police not being prosecuted? To make matters worse, and 
really worse, there was a concerted campaign to cast the Liverpool fans in particular as drunken hooligans who deliberately arrived late, forced the barriers, caused the tragedy, pissed on the dying, and stole from the dead. This took blame the victim to a level never before seen. The Liverpool football community was furious, and they've been seeking justice ever since. Here's the thing, though. The South Yorkshire police did not cause the Hillsborough disaster. They prevented the Hillsborough disaster on at least three previous occasions, and on the fourth time, their luck ran out. This disaster was waiting to happen. And whatever decisions got made on whatever particular day disaster struck would always be cast in hindsight as the wrong decisions. Yes, the police could have been quicker to let fans onto the field, but if they had, then maybe today we'd be blaming them for failing to protect the players from the crowd. Yes, they were wrong to feed the stories blaming the fans, but we'd be wrong today to swing the opposite direction and blame the police. They were guilty of a cover-up, but what they were covering up was the sort of thing that emerges in every accident investigation. I'm just going to quote you a bit of the recent independent report to illustrate the dangerous power of hindsight. Begin quote. The failure to realise the consequences of opening exit gates to relieve congestion at turnstiles. The failure to manage the crowd's entry and allocation between pens. The failure to anticipate the consequences within the central pens of not sealing the tunnel. The delay in realising that the crisis in the central pens was a consequence of overcrowding rather than crowd disorder. End quote. For any one of these supposed failures, the police are just the front-end operators of a hopeless system. If the stadium wasn't a hundred years old in a built-up area, there wouldn't be congestion that needed to be relieved, and there would be other options for relieving it. If the turnstiles simply counted how many people went into each pen, instead of how many went into the stadium as a whole, there would be no need to manage the entry and allocation. With well-designed spaces, there would be no need for the officers to anticipate when to open and close different gates to manage the crowd. Without being responsible for both overcrowding and crowd disorder, the police could have been focused on one or the other, without needing to balance conflicting goals. There were many victims at Hillsborough, but we can understand what happened and stop it happening again, without needing to cast one group or the other as villains. Those sorts of explanations inhibit understanding of what's going on in an accident. They're the type of things that make it easy to say, well, we're not villains, so this couldn't happen to us. These were, until afterwards, well-intentioned people trying to do their job. And that's what we need to understand in order to help people do their job better and safer. So, it's been a while between disaster casts. Last year at the Safety Institute of Australia National Convention, I gave a talk suggesting that safety practitioners need to stop telling so many negative stories. I also published a paper, Tales of Disaster, questioning the value of accident stories in teaching safety. So I've been doing a bit of introspection. On balance, I'm still in favour of using stories as a way of communicating key concepts in safety. 
but I did have to stop and think a bit about what I was doing and why I was doing it. In the meantime, I've been doing a lot of live speaking. That's great for my Australian and New Zealand audiences, but I've missed talking to the full Disastercast crowd. Thank you for those of you who've sent me emails or who've come up to me at public and company events to say you enjoy the podcast and to ask when it will be back. If you're not in Australia or New Zealand, please consider lobbying your local conference to get me along as a guest speaker, and you can make me feel guilty in person for the lack of episodes. I've also been doing a lot more research candidate supervision and working on some projects of my own. Now that a couple of those things are nearing fruition, I'll start sharing them with you. A very special thank you to everyone who's asked for the podcast to come back. For anyone who likes having it back and wants to encourage the new episodes to continue, please drop me a line at feedback at disastercast.co.uk or leave a review on iTunes. Finally, a shout out to my friends Sean Ellis and Rob Alexander. Australia is the best place in the world to live. You guys make me proud to be British too, just so I can claim fellow citizenship. The next episode of Disastercast will be soon. Real soon, I promise. Till then, keep safe.